viewers, this is Andrew Luke Oldham. Welcome to another edition of our pod chat together, where we chat and you don't nap, hopefully, here on Sounds and Vision. Well, we're still deep in COVID-arama. I'm handling it. I can't remember if we've discussed this before, but all those who either remember the faces of their mother coming out of a war or know people who came out of polio, know that this COVID thing is not chapter one and chapter two. It is a series. But what is really boring is what people like Bruce Springsteen think we are going to find interesting. I mean, please, finally, after he's finished milking every cow in the room, the only really interesting thing about Bruce Springsteen is that either... You were a witness of one of his concerts because there is no doubting his astuteness, <laughs> dare I say greatness as well, in that particular forum. But the other thing is he became famous. And haven't we had enough of that? I mean, Bob Dylan, for example. Bruce, dear Bob, he learned the lyrics, God bless him, but he didn't really bother with the melody. He sounded as flat as Cliff Richard starting off on one of his tours where he's using We Don't Talk Anymore as a warm-up, right? You know, a key that, oh, yeah, okay, my voice is in my left back pocket and all this crap, right? And Keith, I know Charlie's looking down at you, but <laughs> do we have to hear it? The only thing we need to hear is if we bought tickets and we are at a Rolling Stones concert. Shame on me for following all this crap, but um, old habits die hard, don't they? Wasn't that a Mick Jagger and Dave Stewart song? from a NAF remake of Alfie. Probably there is nothing NAF about my guest today, Mr. Elliot Easton of The Cars. One of the unique things about The Cars is that time is quite justly being most kind to them because time sorts out the relics from the piss pots and the survivors. There's an added element to all that. At the time, you go into a room, a recording room, to make a hit... And there's other elements going on there. Will that room help your music survive many decades? You're not actually thinking about that. I don't. I hope not. You're sitting there going, okay, man, it's 1980, we're recording. Rick looks good today. How will this sound in 2022? <laughs> that happened to the Stones. I, I also think it's one of the reasons that our music gets used so much in movies. And they haven't used it in Victoria. <laughs> I can't expect that. But the room sound is key to so much. So is the vision. And the cars had that. Elliot Easton, right now, so you know what he's doing, he's forming a band with Sir Harry Bowles Jr. of, of Was Not Was to play for you some classic Southern soul music. They will be getting out and about very soon. Sort of stacks, muscle shows, that type of thing. There's probably going to be new cars activity. After all, this new activity on Duran Duran. What I loved was, sorry to digress, but on the BBC yesterday, they said our put for news, did the very nice promo on Duran Duran. I mean, Simon the Bond is starting to look like Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, years after his success. But the newscaster, which I thought was the lady, was really cheeky, but she probably didn't think about it. It was just actually a fact said, my husband used to be uh, envious of Simon Le Bon's hair, but now he's got more hair than Simon Le Bon. 
Oh, God, I hope Simon Le Bon is not watching that. Anyway, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Eric. Oh, nearly went into Eric Easton. Shame on me. Co-manager of the Rolling Stones with me at the beginning. Elliot Easton. Do you play Hammond B3, Elliot? I hope so. Anyway, the cars. Rick O'Casey. Well, he changed. We must give him this. He did change the future possibilities of out front people out front of a band. Well, he wasn't really out front. They were, a, they were a band in the greatest sense of the word. But they got some of Rick's demos with finished vocals, and they might be going the Jeff Lynn route. Who knows, right? Not necessarily with Jeff, because they're as accomplished as he is in their very special way. And they're probably going to do a, a Cars chore, because I, I'm sure there's a, a lot of great singers who like like uh, Rufus Wainwright. Who'd <laughs> love to be up there? Rufus would do Drive great. You know, his sense of phrasing would uh, fit it exactly. Enough about me, more about you. And here is my conversation with Mr. Elliot East. I am willing to believe anything is possible at this point. Yeah. I don't know if I'm even devious to imagine what's possible. Oh, mm. you must be. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a musician. You were, yeah, you were with Electra Records, dear. <laughs> yeah, but I'm on the wrong side of the desk. <laughs> I, I know, but just go on the other side of the desk. And I remember the great thing of where anybody who greeted you and me as we entered the music business was outside shaking our hand, telling us how fucking wonderful we were. <laughs> the people in the back office were, okay, well, that'll make sure they don't get paid for the next 18 months. Right? <laughs> I'm not complaining about it because we're here and most of them are not. Well, yeah. And as long as there's hopeful young musicians who will do anything to make a record and to get their music out there, there'll always be someone to exploit them. <laughs> well, they see, there's the key words, we'll do anything. Yeah, or, or sign anything. Well, what do you, we can't expect anything less. You know how it is, Andrew. I mean, everybody, regardless of how gifted or talented or how much charisma or amazing they are, they need to turn that little miracle, that little trick to get your foot in the door. It's like that Catch-22 that... Of trying to join SAG, where you can't join until you acted in a movie, can't act in a movie until you have a SAG card. No. Tell me about the mystery figure in your life, and therefore I would think in front of a lot of people, Fred Lewis. Well, Fred took a chance on us early on, but if I was going to think of the first person that comes to mind that turned that little miracle for us that got our foot in the door, it would have to be a woman named Maxanne Sartori who was the primetime DJ at WBCN in Boston. And she put our little two-track demo tape in heavy rotation alongside Elton John, Aerosmith, and the Rolling Stones. And it started getting reported in the Gavin Report and the, what is it, the Wednesday Morning Quarterback or whatever it is. Cal you know, Rudman. Cal Rudman. The Rudman, yeah. Or yep. the radio tip sheets. So did yep. both. So, and you know how those work. They show like, what the big stations around the country are playing so that the smaller ones know what the trends are and right. can get with it. And they were reporting, so it would say, I don't know, uh, Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, MCA, Aerosmith, Get Your Wings, Columbia, The Cars, Just What I Needed, Tape. That's <laughs> great. Oh, that's great. It was amazing. Yeah. And so the A&R people in New York were reading this in the tip sheets in these radio, 
they must, something's going on up there in Boston. And they'd grab that Eastern shuttle and come up and see us at the, the rat scale or the rat in Boston. Yep, yeah, yeah. And that was, that, that was our little miracle. Because who gets a, who gets a demo tape played like on WNEW, say, in heavy rotation? How do you do that? I Listen, I don't know, but I, I find that whole thing fascinating because you just, okay, you growing up could, as you panned your way, I would think, over the radio, you could listen to the 13th floor elevators or if you reached out, all of America could be in front of you. Yeah, on one station, you could hear the 13th floor elevators and then after that, Frank Sinatra. And so, you know, on AM, because yeah. I, I go by the dictum that pop, music is not a, an idiom. It's just short for popular, as we yep, know. Yep, yep. And so if it was Louis Armstrong singing Hello, Darling. Please, please tell Keith. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? It certainly is, yeah. It, it could be Satisfaction followed by Strangers in the Night, followed by The Beatles and then Dean Martin. It didn't matter. It was all, we got it all, Supremes, whatever it was. And it was wonderful because it wasn't compartmentalized. So this guy, Fred Lewis, did Fred, did, did Fred Lewis have any qualification? No, I'm just, I'm, I want to get, otherwise I'll forget it. Because, you know, in my world, there's me, there's Brian Epstein, the much maligned Brian Epstein. Then we come down to people like, did you ever know Terry Durham? The Motor Man, no. Did not know. Who ended up working for Dark Horse on the A&M lot. Then he wasn't welcome. We won't go there, unless you insist. But anyway, we won't go there. But in terms of the motorman, what's really interesting about that is how stupid was Brian Epstein? As soon as the axe made the money, he sold them cars. And Peter Sellers, I bought two. Unfortunately, as everybody wants to malign people, said, yeah, but Brian had a gambling habit. He, he did the cash. Please. So Colonel Parker didn't put over in Vegas so he could have a sweet and gamble like the degenerate he was. That's Come right. On. Yeah. yeah. But I think, don't you think every good manager, apart from myself, has to have a shade of uh, degeneracy. Maybe more than a shade. I mean, you know, it's a dirty business and there's people out there who just sleep like babies while destroying your life. There you go. And it's They so, do. Yeah. yeah. And, and so for a person that's sensitive or a musician or an artist of any kind, it can be quite devastating. You know, But I think, but as we get older, I think we should have got used to it. I mean, when you talk to younger talent now, don't you look at your, with your own wordage at them going, well, if they haven't got a killer in the group, they better get one outside or they're fucked. Yeah, of course. Yep. That's all I can do because I can't really offer them advice on the new paradigm because I, I don't fully understand how you can make a living by getting checks for 42 cents, which I, I, I get. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, right. You know what? I'm saving now. I'm going to make a nice collage when I have enough, but I just put them in a drawer, seven Maybe cents. Maybe a jacket, a jacket. I'll tell you what, man, they're not even worth the poster to sell time. What do, you, how do you, what do you say to a young, talented person? It's like, really? No, it's totally different. Yeah. We had black people, well, not me, I, I was Frank and Dean and these people, man, but they, meaning the Stones particularly, chose, even though he paid just as much attention to the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons, but chose to, like whether it's Muddy Waters or this one or so on, you may idolise the music, but you certainly don't want the lifestyle. No, of course not. Of course not. Um, the Sex Pistols and The Clash probably had us to piss on 
as, you know, oh, look, whatever, right? And by that time, quite correctly, I'm in a 45-minute demo in Grosvenor Square for Street Fighting Man. <laughs> then, Mick, the car's ready, let's go home. Not knocking, Mick, I never do. It's just we've got to have a sense of humour about these well, things. I wouldn't, but, want, I wouldn't want to post money on Sid Vicious in a celebrity grudge match with Keith. There you are, right. No, stamina as well. As tough as they were, blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 exactly. <laughs> oh, look, the, my, the knife slipped out of my hand just when I was going to knife you, Andrew. It's all right, Keith, let me pick it up for you. Yeah, um, apologies but, uh, for Nick Kent. <laughs> yeah, Fred, but Fred Lewis, let me go back to him again because oh. he's my whipping boy for the first 45 minutes. Was oh. he, who was the guy with Bruce Craig, the one who got him in the room? Yeah, Mike Apple. Did he get you in a room? I'm trying to remember how he first made contact with us. I, I don't remember exactly, but he, it was very early on and he saw the potential in the band. He, he might have reached out to Rick, as would be natural. Yeah. And, and this idea was presented to us that this guy wanted to manage the band and had connections. How long did he last? He lasted until the release of our second album in 1979. And it just got bad. The, the band was really getting big. I mean, we sold millions of records from the first record and he wouldn't even hire a secretary to answer his phones. We were getting offers from around the world. Nobody could get in touch with him or get in touch with us to give us the work. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was we were on the set of Midnight Special in 79, uh -huh. TV show that Wolfman Jack hosted. Yep, yep. Yep. And we were hosting and no Fred Lewis. He was out shopping on Melrose and we needed him. <laughs> oh, no, I, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> but here, and here's what. Rick refused to break for commercials with his arms around Wolfman Jack going, and now a commercial. I, and he'd do his little wolf. Rick go, I ain't doing that, man. I'm not doing it. So Wolfman got pissed off and right. he, he left. And so it's the only episode ever that he didn't host. And what they did instead, to make up for it, they made it into this, this is a night of new music, cutting edge, and there was no talking whatsoever, only wow. like a, only a crawl of like text along the bottom. Here's M singing pop music. Here's Lena Lovich. And they'd show uh -huh. these bands, and Wolfman split. He didn't want anything to do with it. We needed our manager. It was like on a TV set, and he was buying cowboy boots. Oh, God bless him. Wolfman Jack, I never met him. I didn't particularly want to. Not part of my childhood. I'm a Murray the K, Cousin Brucey guy. Right, WMCA, right. good guys. Well, exactly. But, but he did, I did get a lesson from him when I was finishing my first book, Stoned. And I was entertaining doing a deal with an American publisher. And they showed me where I had to go, which was every fucking Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the Elvis Presley circuit of books, right? Mm, yeah. And that, that day, Wolfman Jack up and died and had a heart attack following a book tour. Now, as I was only in the middle of bringing myself back to health, <laughs> I thought, this is a fucking warning, dear. You can't do too many Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> so I didn't. I cancelled that deal, and I'm still here. I, I, I think probably what you do in between the Barnes and Noble appearances is the part that can purchase. <laughs> Uh, not recently. No. It's the getting near to the flame again that can hurt you. I hear you. I hear you. What I tell people is I, I play for free and I get paid for the other 22 hours. Oh, that's great. That's really good. Woof. Let's savor that one. People don't understand the road. It's the little things, a different pillow on your neck every night. 
weird food. These the little things that take you out of the, your comfort zone can be so challenging. And people laugh at the whole brown M&M thing and they think it's some prima donna diva move. When in fact, all it is is a fail safe to see if the promoters read the rider. There you are. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. But it's also part of in those 22 hours, as you described, is you've got to keep yourself entertained in those 22 hours. That's the trouble part. <laughs> yeah. You and I know recently before we naturally after we, we've done with Fred now, I've got Fred. But whatever happened to Maxanne Santori? Uh, Max is doing well. She's living in Boston and Brookline. And uh, I spoke to her recently. Uh, she was really pleased. I, I, I included her in my speech, in my induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and told much of what I just told you about how important she was for success. And I was the only one in the band who did that. And she was so pleased that I did because she really felt a little bit let down by a certain tall, skinny lead singer who she'd really helped to make rich and famous. You've got to remember these things. Man. You wouldn't have heard the modern lovers if it wasn't for Maxanne, Ma Jonathan Richmond. There's a lot of things she did that people don't know about. I've had disc jockeys. I mean, I've had people like that in England, not many, you know, because they were for five years, they were all waiting for us to disappear. But I think that's great. So what happened after the second record? Did your manager get uh, approved and sealed by the record company or what? The next manager. Well, needless to say, it was time to start shopping for another manager. Fred didn't walk away quietly. We spent a whole summer in New York in an arbitration room, sitting across the table from him and his lawyers with a retired judge at the other end of the table and having to go through all this nonsense. When we know that it would just end up with him collecting on the stuff he was involved in and he could have just ended it in a day. But anyway. It never uh, happens though, does it? No. It no, no. You it's know. the same as divorce. You can, <laughs> yeah, because you can scream yeah. and yell and shout and kick. And in the end of the day, they feed five, your last five tax returns in and a number pops out. And it's a formula and that's all there is. And it's just the same thing. I mean, we knew what we owed Fred. We knew what he did. We knew what he didn't do. And we weren't trying right. to cheat him. But we did need some guidance and some support in an organization like that. It was already a big band. So, so in other words, suddenly he became good at his business when... <laughs> He was on the way out. Yeah. He also misrepresented himself at the beginning. He led us to believe that he was the manager of the Jay Giles band, when in fact he was a local Warners promo guy who was involved with them and friends with them. But he, he was never, you know. I'm only discussing them because we are giving life lessons to some of the people who are listening to us in that. You know, from what you're just saying, I always go, if you're not happy, if, if you're not happy with what you've already, what you're actually doing, if you've got to invent another, you know, layer to it, then there's something drastically wrong. You know, I mean, either you stand up in the room with somebody, you don't have to, you know, drop Faye Dunaway's name. No, that's it. And it goes back again. We were young, hopeful, would do anything for that piece of black plastic with your name on it. You there know? you are, and especially the songwriting credits. Of you course. Know. So do you want to hear the next chapter, what happened when we needed a new manager? Oh, it's, yes, please. It's funny, it's funny. So... We all we lived in Boston, yeah? Uh, so we all came out to Los Angeles and had set up appointments with three of the top managers. 
Irving Azoff, Shep Gordon, and Elliot Roberts. Okay. Classic, right? You know, it's like the Three Stooges. Central casting. So first meeting is with Irving at Mame's own uh, restaurant. We walk in with him. Oh, hello, Mr. Azoff. Your usual table, Mr. Azoff? Please, this way, Mr. Azoff. We all sit down. We're having lunch. And he's turning us off to such a degree with bragging how much the Eagles spent on cocaine to make Hotel California. And one of his clients have to work another day in their life, including Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> we, we, we could not freaking wait to get out of there quick enough. All right? right. Within a minute, we knew not the guy for us. Right. Okay. Next genius, we go to Shep Gordon's office. Okay. Shep has got, you go in a candy store, a magazine rack of comic books of Kiss and Alice Cooper. And he gets very dramatic with us and whips out an Alice Cooper comic book. And he goes, this is what I'll do. I could do for you. This is history. And we just go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. So so next. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about Shep. I like Shep a lot. I do too. We we had nice times with him. At the time he had Carlos and Charlie's restaurant member. And I even ate at his place in Hawaii. His cafe. Okay. Nice man. Nothing. Right. Yeah. It just stylistically, it wasn't Alice Cooper and Rico Cassett, not similar. Okay. Got it. They got that totally. Hey, he probably knew anyway. Yeah. Rick wouldn't hardly even say thank you after a number. And the next song is called Never Mind Hanging Yourself and Killing Chickens. It just wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to happen. Right. Right. Okay. So, so next. Next stop is. That little row of buildings on Sunset where Alan Pariser and you and the rest of you lot put together the Monterey Pop Festival. Right. I think before that, it was was uh, Lester Sills office. Oh, at, God. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and wow. Yeah, yes, on, you're right. Yes, totally. Right. And later on, Geffen. And it was Elliot and Tony Dimitriotis had lookout management. We went there. Oh, they were they partners? They were, they were in adjoining offices in the same main. Okay. Same, yeah. El, Tony had... Petty and Yes and so on and Devo and Elliot had Neil and Dylan and like that, Joni. So we met with Irving and we met with Shep and they gave us their shtick. And then we go into Elliot's office and he's got his, his cowboy boots and dirty jeans up on a desk, smoking a big fat joint and there's spray paint from Neil Young on the wall. It says, Russ never sleeps. We uh-huh. said, we're home. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course realizing later that was as much of a shtick as anything else. It's all a shtick anyway, man. You're with me? You know, yeah, you know the, 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 the big doobie and the casual attitude and, hey, man, everything's cool. How much of your psyche at that time was locked into knowing, okay, this guy can take us further with our record company than any of the others or more than we can, therefore he's got the key to the door, or did that not come into it? That's all I gave a shit about. I didn't even care that his shtick may have been a hippie, dippy kind of vibe. I mean, he managed Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Joni Mitchell, and that was his vibe. He came into, but we can't forget that he came out here the same way David Geffen did, working in the mailroom at William Morris, intercepting letters that were meant for people upstairs and <laughs> right. and taking advantage of opportunities that were meant for someone that wasn't working in the mailroom. Do you know That's that? Quite, right.
So was the first single, was that the demo or did Roy Thomas Baker actually do some work on it? Oh, yeah. So we we recorded it. We made the first record at Air London on Oxford Street. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And again, the the music business then versus now, we were a just signed band. They put us up in a mansion in Mayfair with a Malaysian couple to cook and clean, polish the brass front doorknob every day, the whole rest of it, gave us a Land Rover and a Jaguar to get back and forth. And we hadn't even put a record out yet. That was the faith they had in this band. But that's, that's dangerous. Yeah, I was 23. I, it was such a mind blower, but it worked. It's all well, right. Did, did, am I wrong saying it was dangerous? Did it actually make you feel like what you were going to become? I don't know that I thought that. I just thought, wow, this is really great. I hope the first record sells enough so that we could do this again. Oh, there you go. Like Ringo wanting the hairdressing salon for his first wife. But I remember us having conversations, saying, sitting in like the, the, the family room at this incredible house in Mayfair and, and say, man, this is unbelievable. I just hope we can sell enough so we can do this some more. Yep. It's just so much fun. I mean, yep. you know, Andrew, you'll love this. The, you'll relate. the first thing I did when I got to England, I'd never been from, I grew up in Long Island, never been further south than D.C., we got to England and we were at the, we stayed at the Royal Garden in Kensington. The first thing I did was walk across the street to Kensington Market, find one of those Middle Eastern cobblers and order a pair of snakeskin boots, Keith Ed. There you go. Boom. Right. I just put my suitcase down and ran across the street. That was the first goddamn thing I did. But that's the wonder of this. I know you've done it in more, but there's something like, fuck this. I know where I want to go already. Totally. Whether, whether with Keith and me, going and wanting to buy these fucking big rings on Madison Avenue and not being allowed in Oof. because they looked at us. And I was actually, shame on me, putting cash through the letterbox going, is this good enough? Because there was a fucking ring there I wanted. You I know? remember from your book, I remember this. Yeah. God, I hope yeah. it was this time, man. I think the best piece of advice you, you ever gave me regarding shopping was, and I think it was, and I, I follow it to this day, was if you like a garment, say a shirt, get two of them. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm afraid I've gone further than that. Me too. Yeah, when I go through, I'm not buying anything for a year, which I've done. Because, you know, when you've got 12 of one thing that you've bought to fit into the category, so it looks like you don't buy things. (laughs) You know, then, then, you know, wait a minute. Uh, Roy Thomas Baker, I've only seen him once at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when it was still a party and you could just misbehave or behave or have a nice time. They don't even have the jam session anymore at the end. No. Roy Thomas Baker, what were, was he an engineer as well? He was. He started out as a T-boy at DECA and, okay. and was one of those kids that was born to be an engineer, taking apart radios and ham radio stuff as a kid. Uh-huh. And he, he had engineered All Right Now by Free. Really? So Roy, he was apprenticing under Gus Dudgeon. Oh. At DECA. And, I love uh, Gus Dudgeon. Yeah. Yeah. I hardly ever recorded at DECA West Hampstead because to me it was like admitting it existed, right? As opposed to I want to record where I want to record and I have yeah. the fucking right to, so fuck you, right? Yeah. And I remember going in there when Marianne, had already, I, we'd already parted ways and she was recording with Gus Dudgeon and Mike Leander. And anyone apart from me, who ever worked with Marianne usually fell in love with. Them. That was their game. And there was these staircases, as they were in all those kind of recording studios. Right, at the control room. Yeah, we're going to allow you to listen to it. Right. That kind of thing. And Gus Dudgeon's wife was 
chasing Gus up the stairs. I knew you were here with her. Anyway, then, you know, we've reached a different chapter in life when women can turn up at your job and cause you grief like that. Come on. But anyway, so Gus Dudgeon was great. But Roy Thomas Baker, so he, yeah. he did he run the board? He had an engineer, but he did a lot of engineering. He did run the board, but he had a second pair of hands. If you yeah, see. Yeah. Just to back up a little, the way we got involved with Roy, we got signed uh, by Electra, which if you want to hear that, it's a very... It's yes, kind of, I do. It's a very funny story. So we met in Boston on the same evening with both Bob Fiden and Clive at Ken's Pub in Copley Square, had dinner with them, and they pitched to us, went across the Charles River to the Sonesta in Cambridge Hotel, and met with Chuck Plotkin and George Daly, where they had jars of uh, talcum powder on their coffee table. Who was Chuck Plotkin? Uh, he was a, a, a big guy at Electra. Like okay. a and guy had the power to sign us. So both Electra and, and Arista wanted us. And um, we ended up obviously going with Electra. It was, Arista were just starting with rock and roll. And all they had at that point, I think maybe they put the Patti Smith record out there, the Outlaws, and they just signed Dwight Twilley. And that was it. Okay. So they weren't really, they were more like Anita Baker and R&B at that time. And Electra. You don't have to say anything about it. Yeah. And so Roy came and saw us at this Holy Trinity College in Worcester, Mass. And yep. it was a, a snowstorm, about 15 people in this giant student union building. And uh, Roy came, Fred Lewis brought him in his little common gear through the snow. And he came and he loved the band. He, he was like, a, he said, you know, he was talked like, he was like a, a Monty Python character. Like, oh, hello, my dears. We love Let's go to England and make a record. Really? Oh, that's crazy. And we're like, we're like, okay, that sounds really good. But let's do that. And he had just done Bohemian Rhapsody. And so he was very hot. And uh, the, the funniest bit was his protege was a guy named Gary Lyons, who had just hit big with the first Foreigner record. And Gary passed on us and Roy grabbed us. And so we went away to England to make the record. And I loved working with Roy. But just tell me this. But when you were in there... Did you record as a band? We recorded basic tracks as a band. Now, the thing to remember about Roy is his massive background vocals. All you have to do is think of the Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. okay. and the operatic, all that gazillion vocals. Now, there's no way you were going to be able to do that on 24 tracks to be able to stack vocals eight times on each part and so on, gang vocals like that. And it was early days. Uh, they didn't have the ability to link two twenty-four tracks yet to get 48 tracks with the, with the symptom track. They, they couldn't sync them up. So Roy had this 40-track tape recorder on two-inch tape made by John Stevens. It was a Stevens 40-track. About four of them existed in the world, and he would travel around the world producing bands, and this thing would break down into three or four camera road trunks. There'd be the transport system and the meters and his remote and the rest of it. And he put it together in whatever studio and he got 40 tracks on two inch. So we would do the basics and immediately go into background vocals because he wanted as many empty tracks as possible. So we'd start stacking. The way we, his technique was to put Ben, Greg, our keyboardist and myself, three on a microphone doing one part seven or eight times till it was thick enough for him. Then he'd bounce that down to maybe a stereo. Mm -hmm. Then we do the next part up, then the next part up, each that many. 
there'd be like 78 voices or something by the end. And then he could empty those tracks and we have free tracks to overdub instruments. Right. But the funny thing is when it comes time to remix a track or for a greatest hits album or to try to bring out bass on a track, try putting a two inch tape that's been recorded on 40 track onto a 24 track machine. So you push up a fader and you hear it. Maybe it's labeled say bass and you Uh hear a little bit of, what's on either side of it because the tracks are so much narrower because right. it's 40, 40 track instead of 24. So he made himself indispensable because you had to have the 40 track Stevens to even deal with the tape. You couldn't play it back on anything else and, huh. and be able to work with it. Oh, that's interesting. There's not- that's the, re- the game over the last, it's not the same, but it's the sort of, you know, where I've had to Zen threaten a couple of engineers that they, you know, their hands will not function again when they try and hide the stems or they play tricks with the fucking stems. Yeah. You know, oh, you got to hire him again. Oh, and, and if that machine broke, he had to fly this fellow John Stevens around to wherever he was. Nobody else could work on it. So, but how much of the track, the band, yeah, came state or, or because you're already in the recording era where, okay, for example, I remember the first time that I saw Duran Duran play in London their first London club date, somebody, a guy, Ken East, EMI, took me to it. And then when the record came out, the record was going to go on the singles charts the next week. And when I heard the single, I went, oh, life's changed. Because I didn't hear, I'm so glad I had that one opportunity to see those four merchants and then this fucking road worker on the drums, right? Hey, man, anybody who names himself Simon LeBong, he's already, I'm I'm dead before I hit the ground. Come on. Yes. But the, car, <laughs> the Cars were a real good band, and uh, we were prepared. We recorded the album in 12 days, that uh-huh. first record. I did all my guitar parts in a day and a half because it was our club set, and it was just a matter of regurgitating it onto tape. Right. And so it went really fast. As far as how much of the band recorded on, on the you know basic track, it was obviously bass, drums, and then it ended up with as little as he could record so that you would know where you were in the song. Oh, wait, what does that mean? What's that? In other words, just a rhythm guitar so you'd know your place in the song along with the bass and drums. Wow. Uh, to get, so because he, he wanted to get huge sounds. And he put three mics on my guitar for overdubs, close, three feet, and at the other end of the room, and blend those. And he worked really hard getting massive sounds. It was painstaking, but, but he, he liked to, to keep the basics to a, a minimum instrumentation to cut down on the bleed and the leakage. Oh, to cut down on I used to love leakage, man. Well, I hear you. I, I'm with you. There's a sound in the room yeah. that's like the fifth member of the band, and I know what you mean. But he was going for something else. And, yeah, uh, yeah. No, anyway, it's still sounds. Oh, who cares? <laughs> well, yeah, there you have. You've nailed it in one. Who'd have thought that that would be the pertinent point? Uh, that now, and it is, because at a certain point, the writing of the song became second, uh, way after your time. Well, wait, wait, that, that sounds cynical on my part. Let's say people... But you're uh, December the 18th, dear. Look at all the other ones. Right, <laughs> okay, but I also feel like you could just as easily say people are still discovering it and falling in love with it. And that's true, too, because young people are really... Like, you know, I've, my daughter's 25, and she tells, you know, kids like the cars, and I, I love that, and I, I, I think that it's age better than some of this quote-unquote new wave music because... It wasn't made on a laptop. Indeed not. And, and lyrically, of course, Rick always explored the dark side of the human condition, and which will never go out of style. It wasn't 
la 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 walking on sunshine. It was, you know, yeah. Uh, who's going to drive you? Who's going to hold you down when you can't stop shaking? So who's going to drive you home, man? Yeah, that, never, that will never become dated because it's about the human condition. But with the technology, now that to start with, I'd like to see someone write write a bridge on a fucking laptop. I don't think it happens, man. No, um, because you're talking about here now. You're talking about you're talking about the human condition. Here we're talking about the human range of how do you get near that condition? How do you work out how to bring it? Funny how you made the single again with Roy and saying, I made one Stones track, apart from Satisfaction, I made one Stones track again, and it was either Time Is On My Side or Heart Of Stone. Because when I had the first acetate mastered for the big hits, High Tide and Green Grass, the, the hits collection, in that it had been recorded in different studios, mainly RCA, Chess and, and Regent Sound, right? And... It, whether it, I can't remember his heart stone, just keep them guessing. All the people out there who know, well, I, think it was, I, I think it was heart stone because yeah. there's that version with the, the funny Hammond organ from That's Brian. Right. So tell me, which one is that? Because <laughs> I don't know and I don't care. It's the one I like less. Okay, I, that's, I, I, uh, which, but which one is that one on the album or the single? Yeah, yeah no, it's the album track because the single. Okay. The reason I did that you know. is, is it fell apart in the running order. And in the mastering, I couldn't make a sort of emotional join. It just sounded as if it had been the single version, sounded as if it had been recorded on another fucking planet. And even though the version on the album would not have stood up on its own, it wasn't meant to. It was meant to stand up if you were just playing the whole side. Right. Well, as far as Roy working from the demo that we did, there was no way he was going to do that. If you knew how meticulous he was in his recording, you would know right away that a live two-track demo was not going to be the basis. How did, how did your home place the, with the radio station like the WBCN yeah. and all of that, how did they react to being fed the new version? Everybody loved it. I'll tell you what, there's a deluxe edition of that first album that Rhino puts out because they put all the Wii stuff out. And the, the demos are on there. And they're, they're really close. They sound the same except for the fidelity and the massive background vocals. Okay. This was live. How did you get from Long Island to the Berkeley School of Music? Uh, the Long Island Railroad. No, uh, Amtrak. Uh, no, not by limo, dear. <laughs> practice, man. Practice. Yeah, practice. Okay. No, I, I, how did I get there? I knew from a really young age that I was going to only wanted to do music. My mom was a Juilliard trained singer huh. who had her own radio show in New York in the 30s, sponsored by Hershey's Chocolate, and had the stage mom from hell who would give her speed to stay up at night as a kid to do these shows, and then barbiturates to go to sleep, and then speed to get up for school. And she hated it so much that she didn't want to do it anymore. And she was so hip and so cool. She, she sang like a Rosemary Clooney kind of singer. Uh -huh. But my grandmother had her on Yiddish radio. Dig this, how fucked up. Her name was Gloria Schwartz. For show business, my grandmother changed it. I have the business cards to Goldler Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> oh, dear, Goldler. For show, for show business. Yeah, right. Oh, dear. So anyway, so yeah. she was brilliant, though. She really was good. And so 
she gave me the music gene and I knew from like really young, I, you know, I started fooling with guitar at three. I saw Elvis on television at three, that would have been 56 and immediately ran and brought my mom a glass of water and a comb to do my hair and a duck's ass and a waterfall uh-huh. in the front. And I was standing with my Mickey Mouse ukulele in the mirror and I'm checking myself out. I'm already a rocker at three. There you go. I, I could show you photographic proof. You, I'm already a lefty. Okay. I'm interested in the lefty business, not because of some of the, just because of some of the other notables, but also in at that time of your life. And my youngest son is a lefty and he went to the American school in Bogota. And I wanted mm-hmm. to kill all the teachers because, you know, get desks so that his hand doesn't end up like that writing because the desk almost may, turns your, the elephant hand. Also the hook to avoid the spiral notebooks, to avoid or smearing what you've just written immediately after you've written it because your hand is following your thing. Believe right. me. But it's, nothing, it's not a decision. It's just how you're wired. It's right, right. to try to mess with someone that way. Yeah. No, I just was annoyed with the system for not providing left-handed desks. Yeah, that's fair enough. Or, or scissors, or I, I could recite a litany. I believe this, it's... Five percent of the population, I think, is left-handed. So, from an, a, a standpoint of making things feasible, recognize yeah. that. Well, I know the time you work with it, but when I saw somebody the other day was that still writing, I'm just going back to Ben, or I'm just interested in anything that in later life, if you don't get a grab on all that's happened to you, logically, you know, not going oh, <laughs> right, but logically, then that you that you spend a great amount of time discounting things that become cost factors for other people. Yeah. Look, you and I, where we met again, we know what the cost factors were yeah. in with Kerry Caruso. And, yes. Yeah. And all the drummers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Know. We've met long before that. You know Oh, that. I know that, dear. But do you remember me taking you as my date to the Grammys? I do. It's one of the magical nights of my life because we had the joints on those wire things. And you had these paper clips that were giant capsules. And yes. We, we wore them as boutonnieres. Yes, there you are. Right? <laughs> and it was shortly before John Denver crashed. I hope we didn't contribute to it. Oh, my God. No. We're smoking this big, fat joint in the middle of the Shrine Auditorium. Everybody was looking at us at the Grammys. Was it at the Radio City Music Hall? Oh, the Radio City. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, it was the Grammys. And yeah. I'm stinking up the place. It was, oh, I don't even know what the hell I was thinking. Well, we weren't. There's a period where you don't think. There you go. Thanks, Mucho, for listening to this week's episode of Sounds and Vision. Big thanks to it. Well, when all that's said and done, you got to remember we only like to slag those that we are more than vaguely fond of. Duran Duran, I first saw them live in London in 1982 on their first gig in London when their single was going to go in the charts that following week. And they were and they remain a mighty fine band. As a reminder, if I may... Please go to my show notes for our YouTube audiovisual companion playlist. Our show, our Sounds and Vision show, is produced by Craig Snyder. Production and audio design is by Mr. Michael Donaldson. 
You can get more episodes of Sounds and Vision by going to soundsandvision.net or by subscribing to this podchat in your favorite podchat feed. You can reach me, moi, at Instagram or Twitter by finding at Newgold and Facebook by going to facebook.com slash Andrew Lou Holden. Sounds and Vision is a production of Because Entertainment. Look forward to seeing you all next week. Take extra special care of yourselves and those who care for you. Ciao for now. Ciao for now.